Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like? They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, policy advocates try to get things done and will use whatever means they have at their disposal to get their recommendations enacted. And many of us are learning lessons from businesses in marketing their products. Now, Ryan Green and Austin Berg work at Iron Light Communications and consult with advocates around the country to help them persuade people on policy issues. Like in 2020, when they helped market against a constitutional amendment to install a progressive income tax in, in Illinois, which voters rejected 53 to 47. Uh, Ryan also has a paper out, Using Persuasion to Win the Culture War, that lays out his approach. Austin and Ryan, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, tell me about your work on the Illinois Constitutional Amendment. I'll let Austin well, first take of all, that I don't know how you got. I, yeah, I don't know how you got Ryan on a podcast. So, good job to you. That's a rare <laughs> get. But um, yeah, I've been working with Ryan for almost ten years on and off, and um, we helped build up the marketing capacity at the Illinois Policy Institute uh, under Ryan's leadership over a number of years. And uh, a lot of that work culminated in 2020 when we faced a existential threat to the economic viability of the state of Illinois. So Illinois, as many people may know, uh, is not a tax friendly state. We have the highest property taxes in the country. We have some of the worst unemployment rates in the country. Uh, we have the worst pension debt problem in the country. And the solution to this these ills for many years was marketed by Illinois Democrats as removing the only taxpayer protection that we have in our state, which is that in our state constitution, it says that we must have a flat income tax. And uh, no one, we Illinois Policy Institute successfully blocked that from even getting on the ballot for many years. It has to be changed through a citizen or changed through a, through a, a referendum. But uh, J.B. Pritzker really ran for governor on this issue beat a very unpopular incumbent, and then proceeded to use a tremendous amount of political capital, and as well as over $50 million. I think he ultimately spent around $65 million to get the progressive income tax passed or in hopes of getting it passed. So he did get it on the ballot. And the idea was very, very popular in Illinois. So in the spring of 2020, ahead of the fall election, it was ahead by 30 points. It was 65 percent approve in the state and 35 percent disapprove so it was a really really an, an uphill battle to defeat it but again this was a really uh really important issue for the illinois policy institute and for iron light to to defeat so we went about finding the most effective message against this campaign against the the fair tax campaign which we'll i'm sure we'll talk about uh, used all the learnings and, and what we had built on the social media and digital side over the last really five years in earnest at Illinois Policy Institute. And by election day, it lost by, you know, five, six points and around 700,000 Biden voters voted no on the fair tax. So I'm sure we'll get into like the tactics and all of that that we use, but that's in broad strokes, uh, the that fight. And then I would mention at the very, the results of that were, one, there's not been any talk of an income tax hike or major 
tax hike of any sort in Illinois since that happened. And the longest serving House Speaker in the history of the country, Mike Madigan, was really took the blame on the left for losing that fight. And it helped precipitate his downfall as House Speaker. He was voted out just months later by his colleagues. So those that was sort of the fallout. Okay, so what did you do on this issue? Uh, again, you had coming into this in the spring, you've got two out of three voters like this idea. And when it comes time to vote for it, the majority vote against. What happened between the, uh, uh, between those points and, and what did you do? Ryan, go ahead. Um, I think we, we started with really getting to understand where voters were on the issue uh, and dissecting you know, specific segments of the voter population and not only determining where they were on the issue, but how they could be moved or if they could be moved against the issue. Um, and uh, so we did voter modeling, we did message testing, and um, we ha had some ideas going into that of how we wanted to message around the issue. Um, and we really used the message testing, I think, to unpack uh, how, we would, how we would talk about it, who we would talk about uh, you know, the issue to. And what we found was um, that, uh, that framing the progressive tax as a, a tax on retirement income, which it would allow for, uh, really moved voters uh, across age demographics and off across both political spectrums. Uh, it, it really excited uh, Republican voters, but then it also moved Democratic voters. And so we decided, uh, given the deficit that we were facing and the lack of resources uh, relative to J.B. Pritzker, that we would go all in on that issue and not really talk about anything else. Um, and so it was one of those like Hail Mary plays, I would say, a very high risk, high reward, um, because if, if our voter modeling and message testing was wrong, uh, we would have paid for paid the price for it come November. Um, but fortunately, you know, we oh, go ahead. You can jump in on that. No, no, uh, please, uh, please go ahead. I'll have some follow ups in a second. Cool. I was going to say, so fortunately, uh, over the summer months, uh, the state treasurer uh, actually said publicly uh, that if, if and when the progressive tax passes, uh, that lawmakers should immediately start discussing uh, taxing retirement income. And so we had this headline, we had it from a, a high-level state representative, a high-level Democrat, uh, and again, we were able to double down on that. And then the final piece of this, um, which is where you know we really bring storytelling to the table and combine it with all of the data and targeting that we're doing, uh, we were able to identify a retired police officer, a Chicago police officer who was a pensioner um, and get him to agree to sue Governor Pritzker uh, over the progressive tax issue. Uh, and so we sort of held that back and dropped that as our October surprise heading into November. And so we dominated uh, the news cycle over the month of October. I believe we had somewhere of 250 media hits uh, related to that lawsuit alone. Um, and I think in total, once the, once the campaign was completed, Illinois policy was cited in more than 50% of all articles that even mentioned the progressive income tax. Um, so we were able to really dominate the, the media cycle and, and, um, get a lot of earned media around that specifically. All right. Tell me more about voter modeling and uh, message testing. Like what specifically is that? Hmm. So yeah, I think it's sort of a combo. Yeah, it's sort of a combo of art and science. So uh, 
we talk a lot. And if you go to Ironlight Labs, our nonprofit's website, you can read a little bit about this. Um, this sort of lens on content strategy we use called SCARF. And it's an acronym. It stands for what initiates a fight or flight response in individuals. It stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And you could probably guess which one the fair tax fell under, which is F, fairness. And I remember early on in the campaign, we talked to some folks on sort of the pro-taxpayer side saying, we've got this awesome marketing idea. We're going to call it the unfair tax. And the crowd goes mild. Like nobody (laughs) cared about that. So uh, we really wanted to leverage themes like certainty, which was uh, squarely in line with the retirement tax message. So politicians who you don't trust are going to get this new power. And what are they going to do with it? They might tax, they might come after your retirement income. That was a, that unlocked a very powerful aspect of certainty, which combated the fairness message. And what people don't understand about the fairness message and about progressive taxation in general is that it's not really about, for the people who support it, it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, a more efficient tax structure, funding social services, anything of that sort. The fairness angle is about if you punish an unfair actor or someone you perceive as acting unfairly, you get a dopamine hit as a you know a person observing this. So w- what people want is for people who they think have gotten uh, ill-gotten gains to be punished. And that is the appeal of a progressive income tax or eating the rich or any of this like class warfare stuff. So certainty was really powerful to leverage because it, we were able to play on what people of Illinois are already like, which is that they have less trust in their state government than residents of any other state for good reason. We've had one public corruption conviction in Illinois per week on average for the last 30 years. Uh, so my last time at all. Uh, my last time I was in Chicago, I got one of those USA Todays that they put in your hotel room. And, uh, and, and but there was, oh, no, no, it wasn't that. It was, it was a local paper and there were sto- four corruption stories in it. Even involving like universities, so yeah, 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 uh, yeah. No, it's it's a I, daily it's reputation is well earned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we, yeah, we shouldn't blame people for for thinking that. So we knew like we couldn't operate on this sort of like fairness axis that was going to be entirely taken by Pritzker's side, and we also knew that that message would be neutralized because there were amazing partners and other folks in Illinois running a tremendous amount of television spend to neutralize JB's. $50 million. So where we really saw our value add was one, our big digital audience and how we had built that over the years, over a million people on uh, subscribing to Illinois policies content, but then two, identifying this really sticky retirement tax message. So that was just a question. And then we had to go out and confirm that assumption. So we battered, we, we did polling uh, and then the we tested. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We, we tested that against a number of different things. One was for example, Colorado had an issue like this, and they're the no side, which won, their key message was it hurts small businesses. But we tested that. That did not perform as well as the retirement tax. Um, another was that it could allow for double taxing the same income. That didn't perform as well. We did a number of these things. So we started really with our gut, and then we then we went out and saw if that was correct. Okay. Uh, tell me more about that. Uh, again, like... How exactly do you, like, is this uh, just a bunch of meetings that you have to have? Like, how long does it take to, 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 to figure this out? Who do you need uh, to be part of making those decisions on what, what, uh, on, on what kind of message do you want to deliver? Well, we have, we have two data partners that we use on that. We don't do this in-house at Ironlight uh, that we mm-hmm. brought in. 
and between the voter modeling and the message testing itself, it's about a 30 day turnaround time. Uh, and to simplify voter modeling down, not being a data scientist myself and probably oversimplifying it for people who are really into this, the goal is just to put voters into quadrants uh, based on propensity to vote um, and then likelihood that they could be moved on an issue and just scoring them based on those two factors. Um, and then reverse engineering your budget based on the people that you feel are the most highly leveraged out of that quadrant. Um, and, you know, with the sophistication of digital tools now, it's very easy to match them actually one-to-one uh, to uh, digital platforms and be able to target them specifically with little to no waste outside of that specific audience, uh, which is critical when, when your budget's a million and you're up against, you know, 65 million on, on both other sides. Um, so uh, that was simply what we did on, on that piece, um, if you were just to distill it down into a quick soundbite. And then the, the cool thing was that after the election, we could go back and see, okay, did this penetrate or not? So we did this exit survey really quick and dirty, just setting up robocalls basically to people who we knew had early voted and were in our swing voter audience. So these are people we didn't know if they were going to vote yes or no. And we asked those who voted no, what was the main reason you voted no? And the number one reason was they didn't trust Illinois politicians going back to certainty. And the number two reason was it was opening the door for a tax on retirement income. So mm-hmm. we that, yeah, not only made, we that second one must have made you really happy. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> okay. And that accounted for, you know, something like 300 to 400,000 votes, just that that single line um, among swing voters. So that was a decisive message. And we were able to go back and look at so, that. One thing I'm I'm curious about then is how many people are open to persuasion? When you listen to politics these days, it feels like everyone's dug in. They've already made up their mind. Like this, when when questioning about whether you're going to vote for a progressive income tax, the battle is over before it began. What what did you actually find? I mean, I I really reject that. I I think. Um... The people that, that we hear from who are the loudest are decided. I think the, the biggest challenge for people like us who are marketers or, or messaging on an issue is that you have to overcome two things, uh, which is apathy and attention in order to reach actual persuadable voters. Because the way I would, the, I guess the way I would describe it is um, a persuadable voter, it's like, someone who uh, every election year is about to walk into an election party, right? And they open the door and they see uh, two factions just screaming at each other. And so they close the door and turn around and walk away. Um, I, I think most most independent voters, most common sense individuals, persuadable individuals are really turned off by the current political climate, um, the overpolarization, the toxicity of messaging, uh, I think a lot of them have tuned out, which is what's created the apathy piece. I, I think in their minds, um, there's really the challenge of, does my vote really matter if this is really what's happening, unfolding in politics? Um, and then the attention piece is you have to be able to cut through the shouting from both sides in order to actually reach those individuals and speak to them um, candidly and I think in a level-headed way. Um, most people... Uh, are rational 
and they aren't already decided on issues. Um, and I think if you're able to reach them with a with a legitimate message in a persuadable way, you can actually move voters still today. The only thing I'd add to that is the fact that this was divorced from having a D or an R at the end of it, right? It was a ballot mm-hmm. issue. Uh, allows you a massive opportunity to divorce an issue that your organization cares about from the partisan political fray. And that's a rare opportunity. And you see this in states like California. We saw we worked on a marijuana legalization campaign in Mississippi, uh, which we wouldn't expect to have legalized marijuana. Similarly, in California, there's some pro-taxpayer measures that, and pro-business measures that pass because people are able to rationally consider some issue that isn't attached to an individual politician or a political party. And so I think pushing ballot initiatives, it's just like a huge opportunity, especially for advocacy focused organizations where they might be frustrated with having to defend uh, political interests all the time. And they can just go direct, direct to consumer with the issue that they care about and message effectively on it. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about Illinois voters that surprised you? Wow. Hmm. Um, if anything, I guess. I mean, I mean, I, I think. Um, Here's I, one. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Austin. We had, we had. Uh, Illinois doesn't get meaningful ballot questions hardly ever. Hmm. Uh, that's due, in part, to that guy I was talking about earlier, Mike Madigan, who wrote in part the 1970 Illinois constitution, which makes it very, very difficult to get anything on the ballot as a citizen. There's only been one ever successful citizen led referendum in the state of Illinois history. And then, and so you have to uh, rely on the political process and lawmakers aren't really going to want to put something really consequential on the ballot when they could continue to dink around the edges and extract as much, um, campaign contributions and as, as, as they can over a period of decades on an issue like the minimum wage or something. You can just constantly hold it as a carrot and a stick uh, with people and, and try to extract money from them. So I was surprised, I was very surprised by how many Illinoisans voted on this question. The drop-off rate from like the top of the ticket to the, to the ballot question itself was a record low in the state. I think it was like less than 5% of people just skipped the question entirely. So when given the opportunity to vote on something meaningful, people really took to that um, and wanted to weigh in. And they decidedly, you know, thankfully decided against it. I don't know. Ryan, were there any other ones that you could think of? I think that's good because it it goes back to the apathy thing that I was talking about and people feeling like their vote doesn't matter. I think in in this scenario, it was very clear to people, not only does your vote matter, but your vote is very consequential. And this is a heavy, heavy issue. Uh, You know, we're talking about changing the tax structure of the state through the state constitution. And I think people took that very seriously. Um, And I think uh, just by seeing how the numbers moved, I mean, people were very open to information and data and arguments related to the issue. And they weren't they didn't go into it already decided and very uh, stubborn about it. You know, they were open to, to hearing from both sides and then just deciding when they went to the to the voting booth. How did you get your message out? I mean, we've talked about trying to select the message, but how did you actually communicate with voters? I assume that it wasn't just trying to write a 650 word op-ed and get into the major newspapers. No, um, 
I mean, we sort of had known uh, well in advance that uh, we were always going to be outgunned and outmanned in Illinois in terms of spend. Um, the trend line in Illinois has been that, you know, uh, gubernatorial elections, ballot fights, all of these things have become increasingly expensive. Uh, we just broke a record for the most expensive um, primary in U.S. history. Um, one of the guys that lost uh, spent $400 per vote, uh, which was is not a good record to have, but uh, broke that record. Um, so we knew uh, in order to have success, we had to start building a massive uh, audience that we could reach um, regularly and cheaply. And the most efficient and effective way to do that is by building an email list of highly engaged subscribers and, and just keeping them involved and, and being able to reach them uh, through those means. Um, and uh, so we, we started doing that very early on before Facebook started aggressively, I think, ratcheting up um, costs to reach and extract audience. And so going into it, uh, you know, we had built an email list of, of almost a million um, subscribers for the Illinois Policy Institute at that point. And so we had, comparatively, we had an advantage. Um, you know, the reason JB and the other folks had to spend a lot of money is they didn't have access to those folks. And so they had to reach them uh, quickly in a short period of time, which made it very expensive for them. Whereas, you know, we were able to speak to them directly and whenever we wanted. That combined with, um, you know, the voter modeling and being able to link the voter modeling up to uh, cell phone ID and IP targeting allowed us to be very surgical in our spend. Um, and uh, we really identified, you know, when you boiled it down, uh, about 650,000 voters that mattered. And so we only focused on them and really spoke to them uh, uh, through our digital targeting and, and, and digital ads. So I think that's so interesting is that email, this 30 year, you know, plus year old technology that's just kind of been in the background of the, you know, conversations about the Internet winds up being such a powerful device to get to get to voters. And I've seen this, you know, with, with people just trying to market their own products, like the best way to do that is send potential customers emails and that kind of thing. So like, it, why hasn't something better come along uh, than email? Well, it has, um, it's now texting, but, but I will, I will say um, in today's world, your, your email address and your cell phone number are digital currency. And people really understand that now. And um, we've also been, I think, conditioned to give our email address away more freely than we had in the past. It was very gated, you know, prior to that, where it was like, I'm not going to give you your my email address. I know you're going to spam me or whatever. I think now, uh, you know, with uh, Square and other uh, just point of sale devices and, and other means of uh, commerce, uh, people are just conditioned to give away their email address. Um, now, whether they open emails and engage on email, now that's an art. Uh, and, and, you know, we've gotten pretty effective at inboxing people and having high open rates. Um, but again, that goes back to the attention piece. And I think you have to, once, once you're given, you know, uh, permission to contact and engage people, you do have to deliver value and, and keep them engaged. Um, so you said that you're, there's 650,000 people you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did you reach? Like, how did you figure out who they are and how to contact them? 
Uh, well, the voter modeling told us who they were. Um, and then from there, we were able to use third party tools to match uh, cell phone IDs and IP addresses to them. Uh, and then from there, anything that has uh, an IP address, you can use to, to deliver a message. So we did streaming audio. Um, uh, and then we did a lot of Facebook marketing and messaging. Um, and the reason for that is um, we've found that persuadable voters, true swing voters, have an outsized uh, share of voice and influence over issues like this. And so to engage them on Facebook uh, and have them be able to share your message with their their network is an extremely powerful tool and allows you to sort of have, an, have a halo effect around uh, an issue. Uh, I think we all know who our strongly conservative friends are, and we all know who our strongly progressive friends are, and we discount what they post and share on social media because we know that they have these predefined ideas about issue sets. Whereas our, our friends who are true swing voters, true independents, if they share something, it carries much more weight than the other two groups. Uh, and so I think that, that that played to our advantage as well, um, being able to target them through Facebook and arm them to share our information that way. The other uh, thing I would add to that is digital media in general allowed a more helpful conversion for people than seeing a TV ad. So, for example, telling people not only vote yes or no, but like, here's what the ballot looks like and here's what it's actually called. It's not called the fair tax. It's called this. It's going to look like this. You click yes or no. Or, hey, we know uh, we're not going to just tell you to vote. We're going to give you a tool that allows you to look up your exact polling place and when it's open. And those things are just not available through traditional, you know, Digital is now traditional, but through through other means like like TV. Okay, so let's say I'm one of those 650,000 people you're trying to reach. Um, what do I see from you, and do I even know it's from you guys? Yeah, people knew it was from us. Um, I, I think to Austin's point, one of the critical decisions we made was to actually put in our ad copy the technical name for the amendment as it was going to appear on the ballot. Um, I guess money money can't always buy wisdom. And uh, JB spent a lot of money talking about the fair tax, but the fair tax wasn't actually on the ballot. Uh, it had a very technical name, a very technical term when you went to the voting booth, and all of our ad copy included that. So people As in knew, like proposal one of 2020? Yeah, it was, it was very, uh, you know, uh, governmental uh, language. So... Mm -hmm. um, so we made sure that we included that because we wanted people to know, you know, the the information you're receiving here is very specific. And to, like to Austin's point, uh, having video and imagery of what the ballot question would actually look like um, armed people. Because back, again, back to the certainty piece, arming people with that information meant that when they went into the voting booth, they were very certain about the information they were going to receive and how they should react to it. And there was no confusion. I can imagine there were a lot of JB Pritzker voters going in, looking for the fair tax, asking people, where's the fair tax on the ballot? And someone saying, uh, there is no fair tax on the ballot. Um, so I, I think that was another key decision that we made going into it when we were messaging and marketing to people. 
Okay, but uh, again, you're trying to reach me on the persuadable yeah. middle. What do what specifically do I see? I mean, you said Facebook ads. There's emails. Do I just get like a blanket email from a person I've never heard of no. saying vote no on this, or um, what? What do you get? What, what would I get? Yeah. So um, our approach to digital targeting um, is, uh, you know, we try to have a confluence of both educational content, edu- uh, entertaining content. Uh, aesthetically pleasing content. Um, you know, there are components to what creates a, an engaging piece of content and an engaging experience. So uh, you would be met with that most likely on Facebook. Uh, and then from there, uh, as Austin said, you, you know, you could uh, look up your polling place uh, to begin creating a plan to vote. Uh, you could sign up for an email list to get more information on the issue. Uh, you could sign a pledge to vote against the issue. Uh, you could sign a petition to strike the issue from the ballot, which was one of the, uh, I think, more effective campaigns that we ran, uh, which then tied to the lawsuit. Um, and, uh, you know, that was how we really uh, began adding additional people to the list. Um, you know, by the end of the fight, you know, we had increased the email list by, I think, more than 50 percent. So we were approaching like one and a half million records at that point in the email list. Um, And then once you're on the email list, the journey really is to slowly begin educating you about the issue. And that's where you can get into the more depth, in-depth sort of policy arguments against it. You know, reckless spending, waste, corruption, uh, you know, what the issue would mean for the economy and things like that. And so that was sort of the user journey. And then, uh, you know, at the end, you know, making sure that you were going to take action, actually vote. Uh, and so from there, we started having people opt into texting to get alerts so that they knew when early voting started. Uh, if they're interested in mail-in voting, uh, you know, they, we would arm them with information about that. Again, the voting lookup tool so they knew where their polling place was. Um, and so we, we tried to make it a, a, uh, a really rewarding uh, user experience so that they felt really equipped going into the election. And some of them would have gotten actually a person at their door with a piece of literature. So one thing we hadn't talked about, you haven't talked about yet is uh, four years prior to this fight, we started a Facebook group in the, or just a Facebook event um, for a rally to remove that fellow I was mentioning earlier, Mike Madigan as speaker of the house. And it was a rally in Springfield. And the people, it was actually early 2017. And the people who came to that, they were so active in that event page that we created a Facebook group in the more early stages of Facebook groups. Um, called It was first called Illinois Policy Activists, which is a horrible name. And then we rebranded it to the Lincoln Lobby. And that had grown through these same ad tactics over the period of years to, I think at that point it was over 15,000 people. It's now around 30,000 people, but during the fair text, it's around 15,000. And those people were really the folks who we could count on to send out texts to folks. So we did a lot of text messages. That's what a swing voter would have gotten. Uh, Calls, which are really tough. We don't usually recommend doing those um, in the lead up to ballot fights. Like people are just so attuned to not answering uh, phone calls, whereas texts, you can still really get through. Your message can get through to a lot of folks. And some of those people, you know, a few dozen of them even went door to door, door knocking, um, on this issue. And that was all because we had been fostering actually in-person real life relationships with those folks over a number of years and been training them on other issues to do things like file a witness slip or call a lawmaker or email a lawmaker. They were used to taking action. 
so go go to the day after the election. You finally get the results in. You've won. How did that feel? I was personally felt pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we were all a bit stunned by because um, at one point I think we were up by like ten percentage points. Uh, it started to close as as mail in and other things started to come in, but I, I think we were all. Wait, were you bit... staying up all night paying attention to election returns? Oh yeah, we were all, and we had a group text going uh, where people were pulling in results. You know, this county closed, this county closed, because we sort of knew, you know, the counties that we were gonna gonna win, and we had some that were on the bubble, uh, mainly the collar counties. That those matter most in Illinois, so we had our eyes on those primarily. Um, but yeah, it was it was a pretty pretty exciting moment and and as austin mentioned the lincoln lobby you know was a highly curated group of highly engaged people um you have to actually apply to join the group and we reject about four or five times as many people as we allow in and uh so then we began celebrating with those folks um because you know they had done a ton of work uh, we would upload a text list uh in the morning and you know, before the workday was over, they had burned through the list and reached all of those voters. And so they were highly engaged and all in on it. Um, Austin, you should tell the, the story about uh, our friend who is the face of the lawsuit and, and the story about his uh, his reaction to it post-election. I think that that's a really, yeah. that's a really key piece. He was, Yeah, that's a cool story in terms of just like, it's easy to divorce yourself like from the actual implications of something when it's like oh this message works like we got to hit this many voters it becomes sort of rote and mechanical at a certain point there's creativity too but you're you're divorced from the actual people and a lot of the people who did a lot of work on this are not paid to do that they just care a lot and this guy don voitovich who is the plaintiff of the lawsuit there his uh he passed away last year and his son called me and he said, oh, I just wanted to say hi and introduce myself. What you guys did with my dad meant so much to him. And he would be holding court on his patio at home with all of his buddies like on the block saying, like, here's how we're going to defeat this thing. And that is was really, really meaningful. Like the fact that someone, you know, cared enough about us and respected us enough to partner with us, like giving their name and their likeness and their, their face to our, our campaign and their blood, sweat and tears and their heart uh, really, really meant a lot. So it sounds like you're doing the essential work necessary to shift the Overton window. I mean, you're finding people to persuade, uh, you're getting them on your side in a way that changes what is politically possible. Why is it that so few people in the political uh, in the political arena seem even interested in persuasion? Why are they interested in persuasion? I mean, the, the, well, no. Why the, aren't Why aren't more people interested oh, in persuading our fellow citizens? They're not. Because it seems like in, this is. Yeah, yeah, they're not interested because of what Austin just talked about. It's hard, and it's mm -hmm. a lot of work. And and I think um, you know one one of the issues with politics today is people. Uh, operate at the surface level and they don't see people and they don't see the impact of the policy and the decisions that they make or they don't care i, I don't know it's, it's one or the other um but uh you know the story of don and what we did 
you know, we really invest in people. And if someone is willing uh, to raise their hand and take that journey with us, we feel obligated to see it through. Uh, and we almost do it more for them than ourselves at that point. Uh, and I think people see that and they react to it. And at the end of the day, people care about other people and they care about their fellow citizen and they you know, care about their fellow American. And if they can see how individuals are impacted and how they can either help uh, in that situation or not, I think that's why people engage in the political process or the policy, public policy process is they, they actually see that uh, if they take an action, if they vote, if they call a lawmaker, they can actually make a difference. I think that's loss. I think that's why the apathy piece is so critical to overcoming is really showing people not only can you have an impact, but you can improve the lives of people around you. Uh, I think that that's, that's really the difference there. Um, and that's how you truly, that's how you truly persuade people is, is just showing them that. Austin, Ryan, thank you guys so much for coming on, and congratulations for having shifted the Overton window. Thank you. Thanks, man. This is great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.